What's the best mechanism to identify bovine respiratory disease using a diagnostic test? We'll talk about some comparisons today when we discuss a paper in After the Abstract. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. On this After the Abstract program, we kind of talk through and, and we're going to talk about some published literature. And our goal with this program is to be able to discuss some of the newer information that has come out and our interpretation of some of the, the written papers. And today's episode is sponsored in part by Elanco Animal Health as they have a, a goal in providing scientific information to beef veterinarians and beef producers. So Brian, our, our general layout for this, and before I get to the paper, I'm just gonna review briefly. Uh, we've got a process that we go through when we evaluate these papers where we review the abstract, identify if it's clinical, We'll look at some of the results and tables, back up to the materials and methods, and then go through the final results and conclusions. And I think part of it is, as we read these papers, you and I don't always read them start to finish. No. <laughs> we read in, in different orders. And you've spent quite a bit of time with this paper, so we'll, we'll jump into it, and I'll let you tell us a little bit about who wrote it, when it came out, all that information, and then we'll, we'll start with the abstract of this one. Sure. And kind of the reason I chose this paper was we talked to veterinarians about antimicrobial stewardship a lot. And one of the questions that is always, well, do I have the diagnosis right? You know, and so one of the, one of the parts about having the diagnosis right is, well, did I do the right sample? So I, you know, I, I like this paper and kind of a little preview for everybody. I'm probably going to eat some words that I have said over the past. So, uh, but this was a paper, the article title is agreement among four sampling methods to identify respiratory pathogens in dairy calves with acute bovine respiratory disease. And there's a, this is a very large collaboration. There's many, many authors, but, uh, Doyle and Brent Cradiel are the first two authors on this paper. And it was published in the journal of veterinary internal medicine in 2017 issue number 31. So, Really, what this paper, what they sought to do is, and I, and again, I'm said I'm going to eat some words here. I have said in the past that a super superficial nasal swab is not a great sample for diagnosing bovine respiratory disease, and I encourage people to do uh, either deep nasopharyngeal swabs or bronchoalveolar lavages, and and all of these methods kind of have they have positives and they have limitations to them, and so the goal of this paper, which is very clinical. So to our first kind of criteria, is it clinically relevant? So the goal of this paper, their objective was to compare and evaluate agreement of the results. And we'll talk, the results are bacteriology and viral results among these, the methods for transtracheal wash, uh, superficial nasal swab, a guarded deep nasopharyngeal swab, and bronchoalveolar lavage in calves that were clinically affected by BRD. And I think this is a, this is a great question because in, in the procedures that you just described, there's a pretty strong gradient in how much time and expense is associated with co collecting a BAL or transtracheal wash versus a superficial nasal swab. Even yeah. the guarded nasal swab is, is a little bit of a pain and those things are a little bit more expensive than sure. the superficial swab. Yeah. So I, you know, and I know these, a lot of these authors and my guess is their goal was, well, if a superficial nasal swab is as good as the other methods, that's what we're going to do. And I totally agree with that. So let's let's dig into it. And, you know, as far as the clinically relevant part, the first kind of criteria we evaluate on this podcast is this was a study that was done in pre-weaned dairy calves. 
So I think what we're talking about as far as the relevance of the sampling methods, absolutely. And I would guess that just from a physiology standpoint, if this works in pre-weaned dairy calves, it's probably applicable in young beef calves. It's probably applicable in feedlot calves. And the one criterion I mentioned is these are calves that have clinical BRD. So it, are these methods comparable if you're screening calves that are preclinical or subclinical? I don't know. But for preclin- for clinical BRD, probably applies whether it's a beef calf or a dairy calf or whatever. So, I so 100, 100 calves in the study average of 49 days of age and all with clinical BRD. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they used uh, their enrollment criteria were uh, they used a respiratory calf scoring system developed by the University of Wisconsin. Um, and then they also had to have a rectal temperature above 39.4 degrees, which is 103 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that was their enrollment criteria. They had one observer that did all of the scoring. So that kind of helps with the consistency of scoring. And then any calves that had previously been treated with antibiotics or Flunixin for BRD or any other disease, those calves were not included in the study. So if there's prior antimicrobial exposure, they didn't. Um, and if they had received an intranasal vaccine within the previous month, uh, because we're going to talk about the correlation between viral results as well, um, those calves were not included in the study. So okay. pretty straightforward. So so back to our kind of skeleton that we go through these with. The, the abstract sounds like it would be clinically relevant. You, you've actually talked a little bit about allocation to treatment group and who would be included and that part sounds reasonable as we glance at the results before we dive into those tables and and you mentioned this a little bit but would this change the way i practice or not would it change some of the things i do and i think your answer was yes because you said if these results are meaningful and it looks like based on what we saw Yes, at which point we dive into the paper. And I just highlight that because those are the first few questions we ask ourselves before we keep reading, right? At that point, we've invested 15 minutes in the paper. Now we're going to go ahead and do a, a maybe a deeper dive. So you talked some about the, the cattle that were included, how they were put into each group. So the experimental unit in this example was each calf right. and the comparison between those tests. So tell me a little bit about what they what they found. Well, and I want to back up just a second because we said every calf was it every calf received all the samples, right? So they performed each of the sampling te- techniques on each calf so that that was what led to that's the, how we compare the agreement. So it's the within calf results that we're comparing and they did actually like the way they put some thought into this. They, they did the sampling in the same order every time. So they went from a superficial nasal swab, which I think probably the least invasive, the least likely to cause contamination. Then they went to the deep nasopharyngeal swab. Then they did the transtracheal wash. And then they last, they did the BAL. So I think, you know, as far as one of the, if you did those in the wrong order, there'd be some questions about, well, did the previous sample have an impact on how you interpret these results? Because they did one swab the swabs they did one from each nostril and then they used one side for the bacterial component one side for the viral component but um, the way they actually went about obtaining these samples is really really important in this case so um, I'm sorry so what did they find so they found that actually 
there's a pretty high level of agreement when you look at whether it was positive or negative. So for each of the pathogens they looked at, and they looked at the Manheimia, Pasteurella, Histophilus, uh, mycoplasma, and then within mycoplasma, they specifically speciated out and looked for mycoplasma bovis. They looked for IBR, BVD types 1 and 2, BRSV, and bovine coronavirus. So that those were, and each calf by each sample type was classified as either positive or negative for each of those pathogens. That's how they performed their analysis, which is very appropriate. They didn't find any histophilus. They didn't find any IBR, BVD. um, So we can not worry about those for the rest of the paper. But um, like I said, the agreement for most of these was actually pretty good. Up, up Up, I would say, above or around 90%. Um, meaning if it was positive by uh, one type, one sample type, it was positive by the other. And their comparator was always transtracheal wash. So they used transtracheal wash as their gold standard. So comparing nasal swab to transtracheal wash, deep nasopharyngeal swab to transtracheal wash, BAL to transtracheal wash, very high agreement, either positive by both or negative by both. So essentially... Transtracheal wash was considered the gold standard in this case. Mm-hmm. Everything was compared to it within each pathogen. And I want to talk a little bit about how they measured that agreement. They used a statistic called the Kappa statistic. And that Kappa statistic measures our agreement beyond chance with zero, meaning essentially it's just chance that we get this outcome, and one, meaning we have perfect agreement. And And the purpose for doing that is if you and I, Brian, were guessing at something, the Kappa statistic would be low. If we actually knew what we were doing, which wouldn't that be cool if we knew what we were doing, (laughs) we were looking at something, then our our Kappa agreement would be high. It's great for comparing two different assessment modalities. Typically, those are broken into scoring ranks, and and because it's between 0 and 1, anywhere between the 0.8 and 1 is considered very good agreement. Almost all of these were very good agreement except the mycoplasma species. So the mycoplasma species actually were very near zero in their agreement between each modality and transtracheal wash. Help me understand, everything else is so good, why are those so poor? Well, and and actually the authors address this in in the discussion. I think it's the discussion, discussion and results part. And one of the places where the Kappa statistic doesn't do a good job is if everything is, if all the tests are positive or all the tests are negative. So when you have really low numbers of results in one of those categories, the Kappa statistic doesn't do a great job of comparing the agreement. And in this case for mycoplasma, and they and this, the authors again they address this in their discussion. Almost all of the calves were positive for mycoplasma by one of the test methods, and and many of them were positive by both transtracheal wash and whatever the comparator was. If you look at you know the the eighty some odd calves that they tested or hundred odd calves that they tested, you know eighty one of them were positive for by nasal swab and transtracheal wash. 78 were positive by nasopharyngeal swab and transtracheal wash, and 81 were positive by BAL and transtracheal. So they're just, there's so many of them are positive. There's no negatives for the statistic to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Because 
And, and in that case, back to my example, zero is you're basically guessing. Well, in that case, if you guessed one, that they were positive. positive <laughs> you're right. Yeah. You'd be right almost all the time just by guessing. So there's no way to sort that out. So I think that's a good one. And, and just to clarify, and, and I may go back to that. So they had a table too in the paper, which talks about prevalences. And when you said mycoplasma, it's mycoplasma species, not just M. bovis. So, so in that case, the mycoplasma species, almost 95 to 100 to 98% of them positive by most tests. What were the other most common? Because one of the things I found interesting in this was, and again, 49-day-old dairy calves on average, um, they found some different things that had different levels of prevalence. What did you take from that table, Brian? Yeah, so looking at table two, so they described yeah, they described the prevalence of the different pathogens in these 100 dairy calf samples, and they split it out by sample methodology. And actually, it says what you would expect it to say based on the discussion we just had about the high level of agreement. So the prevalence for most of the pathogens across the board is very consistent for the different tests. And with one exception, and I'll come back to that, but I will also say from from my experience in the lab looking at lots of BRD results, these prevalences are actually about what I would, they're in the ballpark of what I would have guessed. The only difference that, and again, I would have, I guess I would have anticipated this, but the prevalence of pastorella multocida in these calves, almost like two thirds of the calves were were positive for pastorella multocida. We do not see that in feedlot samples that we receive here. Now, it's not that high, um, but for pre-weaned dairy calves, I definitely would have. Pastorella multocida is, is more of a primary. For feedlot calves, I would have expected the pastorella, the Mannheimia prevalence to be a lot higher. Almost, I would have almost guessed those to be inverted. But So, so for context, the pastorella was positive in about two-thirds of these dairy calves, and the Mannheimia was positive in about 20%. Yep. And so we would have expected those to, I would have expected them flipped or maybe even the Mannheimia a, a little bit higher. But just to rank those, Mycoplasma species was about 95 to 100%. We talked about Mycoplasma bovis was about half the cattle. The Pastorella and Mannheimia we mentioned. The viruses, bovine coronavirus and BRSV, actually pretty low in that 10 to 15% range. And we don't see IBR and BVD on this chart. Yeah. No, and I already mentioned, they did not find any IBR or BVD in any of these calves. And I think that fits with what my preconceived notion about viral prevalences would be. The one interesting thing, and it kind of goes back to our discussion of the, the Kappa statistic for these different pathogens. We mentioned that the Kappa statistic was not very good for mycoplasma because all the calves, for species, because all the calves were positive by one of the tests. The bovine coronavirus results here, the transtracheal wash, so in table two, the transtracheal wash, which is our gold standard, had a prevalence of 6.6%, So, and it was the lowest. The other three tests all had prevalences 15%, roughly 15% or higher, 14.3% or up to 20%. And so if you look, so take that information, so transtracheal wash, our gold standard, has the lowest prevalence, I don't know how great of a comparator that is now because it looks like it might be missing some bovine corona positive calves. Yeah. And if you go down to table three, which is where the agreement is, that's the other, 
that's the other pathogen where the agreement wasn't as good. Um, slipped down it, into it that modern down, range. And, and it's the opposite. So the mycoplasma statistic was poor because they were almost all positive. The coronavirus results are not as good as some of the others because a lot of them are negative. There's very few positives in that case. So, it, it, and again, it's just, a, it's how you interpret the results. It's not wrong the way they did it, but you just have to kind of read that a little bit differently. Well, and I think it's important in, in both those cases of the viruses not to overinterpret and say, hey, there's a difference between bacteria and viruses between these tests because the prevalence is so, so different between them, especially considering that they compared them all to transtracheal wash. And there are potentially some differences in where those viruses are in these sick calves biologically, right? Are they in the yeah, lungs absolutely. or the nose or both? Yeah, and, a, and actually the authors, again, they addressed that as well. And they said, you know, in dairy calves with acute BRD, sampled by all four methods, it was more common to find coronavirus with a nasal or nasopharyngeal swab than transtracheal wash. And it was more common to find BRSV with transtracheal wash than nasopharyngeal swab. So, you know, it, it, again, it does speak a little bit to kind of the biology of where you expect the pathogens to be. But, you know, overall, are we to the conclusions yet? Yeah. You know, kind of overall, we, you know, we look at these papers and you go, would I do something differently based on these results? And, I'd, you know, personally, I'm probably not going to be as adamant that a superficial nasal swab isn't a good diagnostic test for BRD because these results are, are pretty convincing that it is. It's, and again, given the considerations of the time and training to take the sample and the cost of the supplies to do it, I, I think it probably is a pretty reasonable test methodology. Well, and especially in clinical calves. So, and, and I think that's a distinction that you made earlier that I think is important compared to we don't know in screening calves for BRD because the commensal organisms might be different, the other factors that come into play. But in these sick calves, that's what that's what we're seeing. And I would do the same, Brian. I, I would have a very high comfort level with doing a study in clinical calves where we just took a superficial nasal swab, which for those of us that have had the joy of taking the deep nasopharyngeal or doing transtracheal washes or BAL, awesome job by these yeah. guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Come get us, let us move on to that. The, the other thing that, that I think is, is interesting, you've got those prevalences there. And like we talked about the the P-Molt, the Pastorella multocida, higher in those, which we've talked about that before, but it's nice to have some documentation that it is actually pretty high in those calves at 60%. Now, we don't know the pathogenicity or which one of those pathogens is causing disease because the mycoplasma uh, bovis, also high, Mannheimia a little bit lower. So one of, the, one of my take-homes there is these young dairy calves may be a little bit different than some of the feedlot calves that we see or talk about with BRD. Yeah, no, I agree. So excellent. Any other take-homes from this, Brian? They did a nice paper, good good statistics, easy to understand. It's a nice read, and, and my take-home was superficial nasal swab. Sounds, sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah, no, I agree. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, sharing this paper with us, Brian. As I mentioned, this podcast sponsored in part by Alanco Animal Health and if you guys have articles that you'd like us to take a look at or discuss, you can always email us at bci at ksu.edu.